0: Hello, my name is Dr. Kara King. Hi, I'm Dr. Mary Rensel, and we are your hosts for inspirations and insights from Cleveland Clinic Women Docs. In this podcast, we will share conversations with women
1: doctors from all career stages and practices, exploring the highlights and challenges of being a
0: woman in medicine. We hope these thought-provoking stories inspire you and provide insight into the unique challenges and accomplishments of remarkable women docs.
1: Welcome back to Inspirations and Insights, everyone. We are so lucky to have Dr. Kendall Cobb on our show today. Dr. Cobb is a board-certified family physician at Cleveland Clinic with an interest in health maintenance and disease prevention and adolescent health. She is a clinical associate professor of medicine at Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine, and is currently serving as an associate chief of staff with a focus on recruitment and retention of physicians and scientists, particularly those traditionally underrepresented in medicine. Growing up in San Francisco, she studied ballet and when sidelined with an injury, started thinking about other career options, and ultimately went to medical school after receiving a BA in history from Harvard University. In this amazing conversation, she talks about working with medical students, mentoring and supporting their challenges on their journeys to become doctors, and the courage to ask for help while building a culture of psychological
0: safety. We hope you enjoy. Everyone... Well, we are so honored today. We have our Associate Chief of Staff, Dr. Kendall Cobb. Welcome. Thank you. Well, we are very pleased to share some time with you today because we know you're a very busy woman. I'm going to get right to it, Dr. Cobb. I hear you're from San Francisco, that you grew up on the hills and you couldn't have a bike. It was so hilly there. Um, Tell us some stories back from the old days growing up in San Francisco.
2: So I grew up in San Francisco, it's true, uh, around the corner from the Painted Ladies, which are the Victorians that are always photographed, have two older sisters, first person in my family to go into medicine, my mother's an educator, my father's an accountant.
0: Love it, love it. So then the story goes that you found your way to Harvard. So how does one who grows up on the hills of San Francisco find her way to Harvard and who might have pushed you or encouraged you and who was on your team then as far as your encouragement team?
2: Yeah, it's actually my um, history teacher in 10th grade, I want to say Carolyn Mizak was her name. And she just introduced me to Harvard. And I had always thought that I would go to UC Berkeley, which is where my sisters and my mother went. And she told me about Harvard and I applied I applied the other three schools I applied to were all in California and I, I headed out
0: east. Wow impressive now as a graduate of Harvard does that just put you in a special club that you have access to you know the, the thought leaders in the world and tell me about you know alumni weekends or how does all that go?
2: Well my class is very impressive so Katanji Brown Jackson oh. uh, the new Supreme Court Justice is in my class but Thomas Lauderdale and China Forbes who are part of Pink Martini are in my class Kevin Young who uh, is the Executive Director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture is in my class Julie Pottinger whose nom de plume is Julia Quinn who wrote Bridgerton is in my class yeah so it, I think that one of the things I appreciate about my cl- Matt Damon was in my class, though he didn't graduate, and Meredith Stallinger. So I think that one of the things I appreciate about Harvard is that there are people that excel in lots of different areas. I think of it similar to Cleveland Clinic. You often hear about the doctors being great. I've found that people in marketing and finance and all sorts of areas of the organization are excellent at what they do. And so uh, it's exciting to have gotten to know people who just follow their passion and are good people as well.
0: Amazing. Wow, that list, that list you just dropped. I'm going to need a few days just to process that. That is a (laughs) heck of a list. So you, what was it like to see, um, you know, Ketanji Brown Jackson be appointed to the Supreme Court and know you were classmates or just that moment? What is that moment like for somebody that knew her when? So
2: I was relieved. We were in San Francisco on spring break and in March and we watched the hearings. And so that was challenging for me, partly because her husband, Patrick, was my study partner for bio in in college and so we had been exchanging emails and what really helped me when I heard the news is that I texted my daughter I might have emailed her because she doesn't have her phone with her during the day and then she called me back when when she got out of class and she had, like I said, she had watched the hearings with me and I asked her how she was and she said elated, thrilled, and so having knowing the sort of the excitement that she had that the watching sort of the treatment that Katanji had received didn't impact her joy with the with the moment really helped me to have perspective. But it was definitely hard watching the hearings.
1: So your story to me is incredibly interesting, especially your background with kind of the integration of when the fork kind of twisted between you going into this area of wanting to be a ballerina versus kind of shifting into academic medicine. I I love hearing about this point in time when you really had to decide which path was right for you. And what I heard you mention is that you're the first person in your family to actually go into medicine. Is that right?
2: Yes, that's correct. So my sister went to law school about the same time that I went to medical school and my mother got her doctorate in education either when I was in college or when I was in medical school so education is really important in our family and they they supported me fully when I was doing ballet it was a lot of driving me to lessons and that kind of thing but I think that had I not broken my ankle then the finite nature of a career in dance might not have been as clear to me and I, I might have followed that but it, it felt very ephemeral and so then it was clearer to me that that academics was the way to go and I think it's funny in retrospect that I considered ortho I mean it makes sense a lot of dancers, athletes think about orthopedics, and my, my way of being in the world is so different than being a fixer, so family medicine makes a lot of sense to me, and if, when I look back on my life, it's clear to me that family medicine was what I meant, was meant to do.
1: It's funny, those sliding door moments, right? Like if you didn't break your ankle, who knows if you would have gone to college for ballet and then had such a different trajectory, right?
2: It's definitely true.
1: What did your parents think when you made that decision? When you said, you know what, change of plans, I actually want to go into medicine. What did they think?
2: So they were supportive, I think, partly because I had made a full comeback to ballet. I think that had I decided not to go through my recovery, then they probably would have pushed me more. I think that the bigger issue for my mother in particular was when I decided to major in history because she didn't, like I still knew that I wanted to go into medicine. Her thought was, what are you gonna do with a degree in history? So I think that that was more a cause for concern than not doing ballet.
1: And your mom has a doctorate, doctorate in education, so she knows all things education. So she was like, yes. listen, <laughs> I know some things, and I have a concern. <laughs> yes, Exactly. So you're you're breaking down this timeline for me. So I in my mind you broke your ankle and during like during that recovery you were like, Yeah, this is this is hard, I'm gonna shift. But you actually went through full recovery, got back into ballet, and at that time had enough self-reflection at how old were you, like fourteen or fifteen?
2: Uh, fifteen when I made the decision not to continue. So I performed again, I was back on point, so basically head was back to where I was beforehand, if not a little bit better, actually, because sitting, I went to classes and observed the classes when I was casted, and I had always had sort of a mental block for double and triple pirouettes, and so that opportunity to visualize for, you know, that period of time where I was in a cast, or I think was eight weeks, really helped me when I went back, because I had had it in my mind. And I often talk with students, medical students and and residents about visualizing what they see themselves doing 10 to 15 years from now, because what I tell them is, is that I believe that that vision will become a reality, which means that any challenges or hurdles that they're enduring are gonna be overcome because they're meant to do that thing in the future. And so that gives people a lot of calm because I think that a lot of times people think that when they see somebody who they consider to be accomplished, they assume that the road has been smooth and there haven't been any challenges. And I think that helping them to know that everybody has challenges and it's a matter of sort of persevering, I think helps.
1: I'm in love with this. I'm in love with two main aspects of this. So number one, I can envision you in a cast like on the side of this room, I do not dance. So I'm not gonna use the right terminology, but I see visualization in two ways. I see visualization in that you're watching like the technical component of what the other dancers were doing. And you were actually actively watching that to actually incorporate that when you got back into dance. And I believe in that so much as a surgeon. I make all my learners watch their surgical videos for just that because there's, I would say, make the invisible visible, right? When you actually watch yourself in that way. But I also envision a young you, like having this space of self-reflection being like, is this where I want to be, right? Like an actual five to 10 year plan. As a 15 year old, I was not doing that. (laughs) So my question is, how did you have this space of self-reflection? Like, how did you, like, you seem so much wiser than your age. Was anyone guiding you through this area of self-reflection, coaches or your parents? Or how did you have this kind of shift during this time?
2: I had a lot of great teacher. I met teachers. I mentioned Carolyn Mizak, but, you know, my English teacher. I feel really fortunate because the teachers in my life in addition to my mother really helped me to, to feel special and safe to dream and explore and pursue things. And so I can't identify anyone in particular. And I think that, you know, and I used to to read a lot of books like Leo Buscaglia is like one of my favorites. And he talks about, I'm paraphrasing, but basically if, if you're a plum, then you have the choice to sort of be the best plum. Or if you realize that somebody doesn't like plums, you can try to be a banana because realizing that they like bananas, but they'll never choose you because you'll never be the best banana because you're a plum. And so I think that reading different things that had that sort of message of being true to who you are were very helpful to me.
1: Amazing. And also that space of growth mindset, right? I read a lot about fixed mindset versus growth mindset. And like you said, when you see someone successful, it's easy to say, man, they've never had anything hard. They've always been on this trajectory of just greatness. But understanding that this growth mindset takes things like you breaking your ankle, which which I'm sure was just felt like the heaviest thing in the world at that time and spinning it in a way that really changed your entire career. Yeah. My last question in this space before handing it back to Mary is your choice to be a history major. So shifting into the space of saying, okay, I want to go into medicine and then having a mom who is a professional doctor in education and also questioning your decision for a history major. I feel like this says a lot about you as an individual, why you chose this and then stuck with it. Why did Why did you choose history?
2: I remember thinking, so I, I like history, I like the humanities, but I remember thinking that I was gonna be doing science for the rest of my life and that I wanted to be able to talk with people about other things. Now, you know, I, I do work with the National Board of Medical Examiners and, and right now I'm prepping for a meeting where all of the questions are basic science questions and so medical school wasn't easy for me. And I still think that pathophysiology isn't my strength. Like I'm, I'm much better at sort of the clinical aspects, the interactive aspects. But this idea of knowing something else and being able to talk about something else was very appealing to me. And I ended up taking organic chemistry over two summers at UC Berkeley. And you know, using my electives for my pre-med requirements. But I think that the type of analysis that I did, so I would look at primary sources and have to analyze sort of what was implied but not written, I think that that's something that helps me when I'm interacting with people, sort of what are they not saying that I can follow up and ask them about, I think is something that I learned through studying history.
1: Brilliant. And I I heard you, it was either on a different podcast or I read something that one outlet is you have friends outside of medicine. And I was like, oh, yes. Like I cling to my non-doctor friends. And my husband was an anthropology major. I married a physician completely by accident. That was not the plan, but at least he was an anthropology major. And your guys' brains are totally different. I just value that so much. So I knew that
0: there would be more to that question. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Okay, if we're talking brains, you know I got to jump in. (laughs) Right. Um, Kendall, as Associate Chief of Staff, let's go back, you know, let's kind of focus on what's happening in the last few years. Here you are with this perspective, with a history perspective, and now Associate Chief of Staff during the time of a global pandemic. And you are tasked to retain and recruit physicians during this time. Tell me about your what you've seen, what do you think works at this moment in medicine, where are opportunities?
2: Yeah, I think that the pandemic really showed the organization at its strongest in that there were people that were, were charged with tasks, and the expectation was everybody was going to sort of follow and make it happen, which was felt very different than what we sometimes see where it's a lot more relationship management and and sort of slower process. So that that part of it was very exciting to me. I think that one of the things that's challenging right now because of what's going on with the economy is the pandemic really allowed us to take a step back and say what's important and what's the work. And especially in primary care, there's so much that is, and I think it's true in lots of fields, but in primary care, there's so much that is not work that gets done when you're face to face with a patient. And so there was this opportunity to really honor that work and and make sure that we build in time for people to do that. And so I I think that that's still a goal that I have is, because one of the things that's great about Dr. Ridgway is that she recognizes that she knows the work of like a pelvic floor gynecology surgeon but she doesn't know, like, the work of a family physician. And so she looks to the different leaders and say, tell me what your work is. And so that's, that's exciting. I think that sometimes leaders don't trust that they can sort of say, hey, like, this is what we do. This is what we need time for. And so it remains to be seen whether or not people will have the courage to say, These are the things that we do. This is what we can contribute to the budget. And I think that that piece is so important to retaining. And as I I talk with students and residents to recruiting them or retaining them for their next chapter, because I think things are really different. Like, I mean, yes, there are still people that are practicing here that are, you know, in their 70s. One of the challenges, again, in primary care is that you want people to be able to do this work for decades. And what has happened over the last 10, 15 years is that you'll see people that do primary care for a while and then they'll become a hospitalist or they'll go into women's health as sort of there are many areas of women's health that like you have this continuity of care, but they're choosing areas that are like chronic pelvic pain. And so where they, it's sort of, you don't have this, it's different than sort of the longitudinal nature of having a relationship with patients and being responsible for their care. And part of that is that there is all of that other patient care that's non-patient facing, whether it's refill requests or phone encounters or lab results. And so I think that people sometimes feel like there aren't enough hours in the day and and how do they balance their family, their other things that are important to them, and this true commitment and sense of calling to their patients.
0: Yeah, so I'm hearing the you know, curiosity, you know, a leader with curiosity back to Dr. Barry Ridgway, who's our chief of staff, for those who aren't aware. But she's, she's, you know, leading with curiosity and asking her leaders and her team for their opinions. You know, what are the opportunities right now in physician recruitment and retainment where where you think we need to be even more curious because there's many opportunities? I mean, one thing obvious to me is diversity and equity and inclusion obviously that's an area that's been um part of your professional roles and your personal experience you know where you know where can we open the door and remain curious to you know change the the face of medicine right now there's just seems like there are the, the dei leaders in this space are maybe given no time or money to work on it so tell us you know where do you think we need to be more curious or what are some next steps as an institution that we can take
2: yeah I think that part of it is one of the things that we started doing in the last year, which is having department chairs talk with program directors and having department chairs talk with trainees, not at the end but sort of at the beginning so that we have a better idea of what they want in a career so, for example, there's a woman who is very interested in sort of community health, and she received the Catalyst grant. And so I started talking with the department chair a year ago about sort of, okay, what are the options? And so part of it is being proactive. One of the things that happens is that some people have National Health Service course scholarships, and so they have to work in certain sites in order to have that repaid. And I think that part of it too is making sure that the organization is identifying and going through the process to get our sites that would qualify. And so it's a lot of intentionality. I think that historically sometimes we've thought, oh, well, we have opening in this area and we're gonna hire whomever as opposed to being more intentional about our placement and our planning for who works where.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And what are some next steps or some tangible results you'd like to see in the next year in that space?
2: You know, I would love for us to have the the creativity to honor what people want to do. And I, I think that that's scary and hard, because we. it's much easier to have everybody doing the same thing, right? Like, And one of the things I appreciate about the Women's Health Institute a few years ago is, okay, Dr. Ridgway's ability to say, okay, this is what we need to do, how do you want to do it? And I think that that's really the empowerment of the physician is so important. We can ask people to do things. And let them have some say in how they do it. And I think that that helps people feel like they have some autonomy, even when there are a lot of demands.
1: You nailed it on the head. And I was lucky enough to be recruited by Dr. Barry Ridgway. I am here because of her. She is an amazing human. And that, that sense of autonomy goes so far. Like if you say I have to see five more patients, no problem. As long as I can put them where I where they fit, they fit into my life, right? I'd rather see patients personally for me at six a.m. virtually than at six p.m. Uh, in the same type of day. So I cannot stress enough how amazing Barry is for having that forward thinking and how much of an impact it has on physicians. Okay, I want to shift just a little bit into this area of really recruiting younger than medical students and residents, young black college students into this area of medicine. So the most recent st- statistic that I saw was that African-Americans make up only 4% of physicians, which is mind-blowing to me. And I love the saying, if you can't see it, you can't be it, right? These people aren't seeing people who look like them in these roles. And so oftentimes, I don't even think it's a possibility. You know, I interviewed Dr. Lash Nolan. Do you know Lash Nolan? (laughs) You do? No? So she is the first African-American Harvard Medical School president as of last year. And she talks a lot about this. And so my question for you is, what advice do you have for young Black college students who are considering going into medicine?
2: What comes to mind is what we say when people are experiencing something that shouldn't be happening, right? Like, so I'm thinking about if a child is is getting inappropriate attention. It's sort of like, keep talking to people until you find somebody that's going to listen. So I think that sometimes people will get discouraged or be told that like, oh, well, you should consider doing something else. And I, I think that part of it and it's hard because it's vulnerable to put one's dreams out there. And so I guess that what I would say is, you know, keep on going to people until you find somebody that's like, yeah, like, absolutely, because I, I remember talking with uh, a woman a couple of years ago who wanted to go into OBGYN and she had met with, you know, a career advisor and he had said, you know, I don't, I don't think that you're going to, to be able to match successfully with your board scores. And so I told her, as like, you know, he does not know what God has planned for you. Like I am, she's a spiritual person. I'm a spiritual person. I wouldn't say that to somebody if like, you know, that wasn't going to have meaning to them. But in her case, I told her. And so, you know, she agonized and, and continued to agonize. And she ended up ranking, you know, ranking her top choice, which was a top hospital matching there. And so I think that part of it too is is that we look to other people to, as somehow they're knowledgeable and they they know what our, our future holds. And I, I think that that's not always true. And so I think that just continuing to look for support and not being discouraged. Similarly, I think that sometimes people get into the pattern of, okay, well, I have to fight everybody, and, and there are people that don't think that I can do this, and so when they run into trouble, then sometimes they feel like they have to sort of deal with it on their own, and, and one of the most important things is, is that that recognition that we all run into challenges, and that, you know, I, I tell my students all the time, like, you know, no judgment here, like, my goal is to help you navigate this path, And so, so know that people aren't, that there are people that are going to like sort of help you move forward and, and just seek those people out.
1: So powerful. So really finding these psychologically safe cultures that you can express what can feel vulnerable, right? That I want to be, let's say a physician and feeling like you can say that out into the universe and it's not going to be laughed at or said that you can't do that. And again, I think it was you I heard either an article that I read or a podcast that I was listening to about even students asking for help, right? Like being self-conscious because they're already, you know, having a little bit of imposter syndrome, which I have every single day. And so being fearful that if they're going to ask for help, they're going to have the lens of, well, obviously you need help. You shouldn't be here anyway. And that is just so terrible to even think that that students are feeling that. And that's their, their students' job is to learn. They should be going for help. But acknowledging that as physicians and teachers, it's so important, don't you think?
2: Yeah, I do. And I, I think that part of it too is, and I have to do this myself, is remembering how I feel and what I think when people come to me with a question or for help, I'm not, I'm like, I'm really excited to help them as opposed to what, when I'm on the seeking side of help, then I all of a sudden think that people are going to think that like, oh, well, you know, like all these negative things about me. And that, and so I think that it's helpful to sort of think about sort of the people that approach us for help and how we respond to them to give ourselves the courage to to sort of seek help you know i am not a statistician by any means and i'm glad that we have great statisticians here i'm grateful that we have great communication people here and so again like that's one of the things i love about working here is that Early on when I was here working in the medical school, I was working with you know some pancreatic surgeons, some colorectal surgeons, and this idea that they recognize that they couldn't do what I do as a family physician just like I can't do what they do, that's huge and it doesn't happen every place. I think that we each have our unique gifts, talents, strengths that we bring to the world. And so it's not that we need to do everything to solve a problem but we can do our part and so that has been really empowering and freeing for me because I want everything to be better and I can contribute my part but I can't make everything better like I can do my part to make things better
1: you're touching me so deeply with their words in that number one self-talk is so critical like things that i say to myself i would never say to somebody else so i should not be talking like that to myself and keeping that lens is i think so important and then the other part of this is modeling what it looks like to ask for help right? Like having learners and our colleagues see what it looks like to be asking for help in stats. Or again, my brain goes to the operating room because I'm a surgeon. But if you need help in the operating room, putting ego aside and asking for an interop consult and I think sometimes just modeling that that I am really good really good at some things I acknowledge I'm not really great at others I'm at the Cleveland Clinic which is the mecca of brilliant minds and and you know just having that culture that you can ask for help and it's for patient optimization and it's okay and it's actually congratulated
2: yeah it's funny because I was just meeting with um, a couple of students on Saturday and I was feeling conflicted because I made a commitment to attend the WPSA dinner on Thursday, and I actually had invited a bunch of students. And then I found out that curriculum night for my daughter is the same night. And so I, I asked the two students I was meeting with who are OU students, and they have another event that night, so they weren't two of the students. I said, you know, I'm really conflicted about this. And so I also think that sort of sharing recognizing that, that I don't have all the answers and, and getting other people's perspectives is really helpful. And of course, both of them said like, well, you should go to the WPSA thing because your husband is already going to go to curriculum night and he's going to take notes. And And I was really proud of them because of course I was doing the whole, my daughter has one mother, she's in ninth grade. And so like to have that perspective was really helpful and my my daughter didn't care whether I go or not because you know <laughs> she just wants to make sure that somebody's going to pick her up after rehearsal so that she doesn't have to stay at school until curriculum night's over and I told her I could take care of that so
1: I love that you got her priorities out of the way you had your own securities brought to your psychologically safe tribe, and now you have a great plan, and you'll be at WPSA dinner this Thursday, right? That's the most
0: important part of that. Okay, great. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Great. Mary, you want to close this out? Oh, Kendall, thank you for your time. I, you know, I would, I want to ask you one last question. If you had to think of medicine in the last 12 months compared to when you got into medicine, what are some changes that you've seen and maybe something that you also have seen mirrored in your students, because you're very close with so many learners at various levels. What do you see coming up in medicine or a change in medicine?
2: So I'm not sure it's a shift in medicine as much as it's a shift in me. I think that I was better about it with patients than I than I was with students, but now it's extending to students, which is this what I was talking about no judgment, right? So this isn't really answering your question because it's not how I heard the question. I mean, there are lots of things that have changed in medicine as far as, like, people feeling like they can question, and, you know, I think students and patients all want to sort of be involved. But the, the thing that, going back to what I can control, I think that I, I can be very hard on students in that, like, I want them to, to do their best, and... One of the things that fascinates my family and friends is that I'm, I'm, as a person, pretty judgmental, but I don't carry that into interactions with patients, right? Like, I feel like everybody's self-critical enough, like that, that's not what they're coming to me for. And, and sometimes patients will want me to take on that role and like, I can't take on that role. That's not who I am in that space. But I think that one of the things that I realized, having been away from medical education for a couple of years, is that the same thing is true of students, right? So like, I think that I'm nurturing and I also have high expectations, but I think that I tend to err more now on that sort of like, you know what, like this is a rough road and like, it's hard and I'm, I'm with you, right? Like, the accompaniment piece of life is so important to me. And so that, that has changed. And so I think that regardless of what somebody decides, then, like, that idea of, like, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. And I'm not necessarily going to agree with, with your decision, but, but I'm, I'm with you. To, to make the best of, of your path. And so that, I think, has changed. I think that one of the things that I realize is that students, similar to patients, I can withhold judgment. And really, regardless of what they decide, I can, I can share my opinion, but really my purpose is to accompany them on the journey. And so I think that that has allowed me to be more kind and suspending judgment with students in the same way that I do with patients.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that insight. I love that I'm with you message. The journey can be so hard and having you in their corner, I am certain makes an incredible difference in your students' trajectory. Well, unfortunately, I think that is all we have time for today. Kendall, thank you so much for joining us. Mary and I have learned so much from your wisdom.
2: Thank you so much. This was a wonderful experience, and I appreciate your taking the time.
1: Thank you for listening today. Join us again as we draw inspirations and insights from women doctors past, present, and future. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WPSA1. That's at WPSA and the number one. This podcast is supported by Cleveland Clinic's Women's Professional Staff Association as part of the Cleveland Clinic Centennial Celebration.